Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Okay, so 1 Samuel, um, we're going to be looking at verses, chapter 2, verses 11 through 26. I'd like to take you back for a moment to Hannah's song, which we talked about mirroring Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat. And Hannah's song is in the light of the birth of a what would be considered a miracle child, that is Samuel. And we see in uh, 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, then Hannah prayed, and she is rejoicing in the Lord. She says, 1 Samuel 2, 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. The word exalt means to praise or rejoice or glory. My horn or strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Now I'm going to stop there in Hannah's prayer because we studied this last time, but I just want to focus for a moment on the end of verse 3, and when Hannah uh, prays that the mouths of the boastful would be silenced, she says, with the, Lord's, with the Lord, actions are weighed. And I just want to say something simple, but I think it'll resonate with all of us. God does care about how you conduct yourself. And what's going to come before us tonight is a contrast of leaders I told you that when we launched into the book of 1 Samuel, that the book of 1 Samuel is a book about leadership. It will ultimately lead in a man after God's own heart who governs according to God's will. And in the uh, account before us, we have contrasting leaders. Uh, I would call this message tonight, Leaders in Contrast. We're going to have a dedicated leader and a corrupt leader's corrupted leadership, that is, Hophni and Phinehas are corrupt. They are in positions of authority, but they have no business being there. Their dad should have kicked them out of the priesthood a long time ago, but he did not. He he did seem to warn them, but he did not do anything that a father should have done. He did not deal with his children. And Hannah and Elkanah, uh, and Samuel, their miracle child that they prayed through and asked the Lord for and dedicated to the Lord, is in direct contrast to these two terrible leaders. He has a heart after God. He wants to do God's will. His parents, I believe, birthed that in him. And First uh, Samuel is going to take us now to a journey of contrasting leaders. I don't have to tell you that the world kind of rises and falls with leaders, doesn't it? I mean, ultimately, God is in charge of the world, but we know that leadership is hugely important, and we know that within leaders, we can see good and bad things. Now, we're not to put all of our stock in leaders, because all leaders, save Jesus Christ, are human. (laughs) And whenever you have humans involved, there's bound to be some issues, But that does not mean that we shouldn't have expectations of leaders. As a matter of fact, 
1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 tell us that there are very um, high expectations for elders in a church. It's not simply anybody who can step into a position of authority. There are certain expectations, and most of those expectations have to do with your character. There's only one other qualification for an elder, for example, and that is his ability to teach. Outside of that, if you go through 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, every other characteristic is going to be about character. It's going to be about how a man conducts his life, how he conducts his family, what he looks like in his everyday life. And there is definitely a difference between leaders here, dedicated Samuel and corrupted Hophni and Phinehas. Look at verse 11, 1 Samuel 2. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah. But the boy, that is Samuel, ministered, the word is sharat in Hebrew, to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now Samuel is something uh, like an apprentice to Eli. We're not quite sure how, Samuel, how old Samuel is, but we do know that right after he was weaned, uh, Hannah brought him and left him at the temple. And we do know that he was relatively small. He was a little boy. We're going to see her tender care for him, but in essence, she has given him back to God. God has given a promise to her. That promise has found fulfillment in God's grace. Hannah's name means grace. And she has given the child back to God. And when I'm saying giving him back to God, I'm talking about literally giving him back to God. Now, we've talked about in previous studies that this is where dedication in the Christian church comes from. And the reason that some Christian churches dedicate children is because they believe that uh, you shouldn't be baptized until you can make your own volitional choice to follow Christ. But I do have to tell you that some of the Christian church does baptize babies. Our Reformed brethren do do infant baptism. We do have other churches that are practicing infant baptism. So when I say the Christian church, I need to be careful because a lot of our believing brethren do practice infant baptism. I don't personally agree with it. I don't even fully understand why they do it. But uh, nonetheless, much of the non-denominational evangelical Christian church, if you will, uh, and I I shouldn't even say evangelical because Reformed churches are evangelical, but some of the Christian church (laughs) has decided to do dedication. And when a child is dedicated, you know, lots of times you'll see a one or two-year-old and we all goo-goo and ga-ga at that baby and I normally walk him up and down the aisles. So oh, he's so cute. Oh. Usually they're whacking at the microphone and stuff. And I talk about dedication and I go back to 1 Samuel, the early chapters, and I say, in essence, the ones that are doing the dedicating today are the parents. We're going to pray for that child. We're going to pray that that child comes to know the Lord early in life But really, the ones that are doing the dedicating are mom and dad. Because what they are dedicating themselves to is to give that child back to God. Now, in their case, they're not going to leave him at uh, a holy site. (laughs) They're not going to leave that child at the temple. But they are saying, I'm giving this child back to God. So if you decide that you have a young one and you want to dedicate that child, or if you were dedicated when you were small, That's the essence of dedication, is to give back to God. The word dedicate means to set apart for sacred uh, service or for sacred purposes. So if you say, I'm dedicated to Jesus, 
In essence, what you're saying is I'm dedicated for his sacred purposes. That's what a good leader is. He is dedicated. She is dedicated. And we have the opposite in Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 12 says, it doesn't hide, the Bible doesn't hide the facts. That it says, now the sons of Eli, Eli was the priest or the judge or even the high priest at this time. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. How do you like that? The Bible actually calls some people <laughs> worthless. Wow. Now what would make something this strong and radical be stated in our Bible? Well, verse 12 tells us why. They did not know the Lord. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit ironic, isn't it? You have two sons of the priest serving as priests, which we're going to find out, and we saw earlier in chapter 1. They are priests. They are doing, quote-unquote, priestly things. They are supposed to minister to the Lord before the people, to represent the people before the Lord and God to the people. They're offering sacrifice. They're supposed to teach the law to the people. There's only one minor problem. They don't know God. Now, that doesn't shock you that much in a modern Christian audience, and here's why. Because you are very used to corrupt leadership. That's just a fact. And I'm not talking about just political leadership. We are not surprised anymore when leaders fall because, frankly, we've lowered our expectations of leaders. And the reason is is because we get disappointed so much. And so anymore, let's face it, pastors and church leaders used to have a lot of respect in the community. Now, we're almost a joke to the world. It used to be that the church house was the place that the community came together and tried to figure out things about the nation and about society and about the community. No more. You can't have community meetings now in churches because there's too much of that so-called separation of church and state going on, which is a big fat lie, right? So here's what we got. We got, when we hear about somebody falling in the pastorate or whatever, it's become commonplace. And we go back to the story of Hophni and Phinehas. They have the title, they have the business card, they are wearing the garb, they're acting in these particular positions, but they don't know the Lord. And I have to tell you that today there are people in positions, they are called clergy, and I wonder if they're born again. And if you're not born again, there's where the problem starts. It's one thing to know about the Lord. It's one thing to know stuff about God or even to know biblical prescriptions about how you go about certain things. But it's another thing to know God. And the most important thing that you and I could apply tonight, point number one, if you will, as we go along this journey of how to become a good leader in God's sight, is you got to know the Lord. And I'm not just talking about knowing about Him. I'm talking about knowing Him. And I'm talking about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The, most, the best thing I could do to lead a group of people is to know God better. Because my whole job description is to lead you closer to Him. But I can't bring you any closer than I am. 
And so whatever you're doing in your scope of life, your sphere of influence, whatever, you, you got a little Sunday school class, you've got a family you're leading, you, you're doing a one-to-one discipleship, just remember that. That job number one for any good leader is to know the Lord and to, and to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Samuel knows the Lord. Look at verse 11. He's a little boy and he's already ministering to the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When a little kid ministers. Sharat is the Hebrew word for minister. In verse 11, it means to attend, to worship, to minister, to serve, to officiate. Right now, the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli as his protege or apprentice. He's serving uh, in Eli's presence, but he is ministering to the Lord. Sometimes we underestimate how Little kids can minister to the Lord. But Jesus said, Don't hinder the little kids from coming to me. For to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jesus said, Unless you have the faith of a little child, you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's easy for us to dismiss the little ones. But you know what? Childlike faith is something that the Bible actually applauds. Somebody once said it's good to have a child's heart and a grown-up's brain. I mean, this doesn't mean that we just check our brains at the door and we don't study to show ourselves approved. That's not what the Bible's teaching. But the Bible is teaching childlike faith. It is sometimes, I I think, a wish of all of us that we could go back to that time when you were little and, and life was much more simple. And I think when it comes to matters of faith, It's that way as well. Well, you can be a kid again in your heart. Amen? As you follow the Lord, just a simple childlike faith. Now we see in 1 Samuel 1.3, just so we can identify who we're talking about, um, if you look at 1 Samuel 1 verse 3, we find out that Hophni and Phinehas um, were, they're identified as priests to the Lord there and the there is Shiloh where the uh, tabernacle is at this point. And they are literally, in verse 12, you could render this uh, phrase, worthless men, sons of Belial. Now there was an accusation made uh, against Hannah and, and the, uh, Eli thought that she was drunk at the temple. Remember that? And she said, no, I'm not drunk. I'm not a worthless woman like your sons. <laughs> I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. I'm not a woman, I'm not a daughter of Belial. But, her, but Eli's sons were sons of Belial. Now this is an interesting uh, phrase. It's actually picked up by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. I'll just give you the reference. It's 14 and 15. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. This is the famous Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now when Paul's stating this in 2 Corinthians 6, he's not saying not to have friendships with unbelievers. But he is saying that there is a line that you don't cross with an unbelieving friend, and that is you should not go into a partnership with them and you should not marry them. 
We have all kinds of Christians who somehow have found a loophole with do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. If you are considering a relationship tonight and that person is an unbeliever, all I can say to you is don't do it. Do not move forward in that relationship. Don't think that by your presence in that person's life, they're going to get saved. You're going to bring them to the Lord. Did you know that they might be dating you right now just so that they could get to you but they have no intention. They might say, oh, I have no problem with church. I'm good with that. But you know what? After you sign on the dotted line, that doesn't always fly. Now, there are some people in the church who, um, they were a non-Christian. They they married another non-Christian. They got saved, and their spouse is now a non-Christian. There's not much you can do about that. Except the biblical prescription is pray and leave gospel tracts in their sandwich. So, anyway, <laughs> right, put it right between the lettuce and the mayonnaise. Perfect. Deuteronomy 13.3 says, some, 13.13 says, Some worthless Belial men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. What is the issue? Why does the Bible come across so strongly with these men? Why would the Bible say that they are worthless? Because ultimately they're leading people away from the living God. And that is something that the Bible is going to condemn. If you are drawing people away from God, God has a very dim view of that. Samuel had great purpose. These two men were worthless. Now we're going to do something a little different tonight. We're going to move ahead and come back. I'm going to show you what happens now that's going to give us a little fuller description of what's going on in terms of this family of Eli. Skip all the way down to verse 27 and notice what happens. Then a man of God, this is an unidentified prophet. I would call this a UTP, an unidentified traveling prophet. You might want to just write that down. Just kidding, don't, don't write it down. <laughs> then a man of God, that is a prophet, came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not reveal myself to the house of your father? This would be a reference to Aaron, the first high priest, when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house. And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel, 28, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? Did I not give the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick or scorn at my sacrifice? Remember, Eli's the priest in charge. His sons are doing all kinds of shenanigans, and he's confronted by this prophet. He says, you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering. These are things to atone for sins, which I have commanded in my dwelling or in my house. And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Now I want you to see one of the main uh, marks against Eli as a dad is he honored his sons above God. 
This came out, and we'll see this in a little more detail, in that Eli was afraid to be very direct with his sons and deal with them. He tiptoed around the issue. He spoke to them, but he never truly rebuked them, and he never truly held them accountable. He turned a blind eye as a father, and God did not hold his, well, he held his sons accountable. We'll see that in a moment. But he held the father accountable as well for not rebuking his, his sons. God's indictment is radical. He says, you've honored your sons above me. The Hebrew word for honor is kavod or kabod or kavod. has some different uh, spellings. And it means that which is weighty. When you... When something is weighty, you say it, it's heavy. We, we heard that, what is that, in the 70s? It's heavy, man, heavy, man, right? Well, when something's heavy, we mean that's something deep, that's, that has weight, that has substance, right? Well, that's the Hebrew word here. And whatever is weighty is what you give the most value to. And God says, you valued your sons who are worthless above me. You put more weight on what they thought than you did on what I think, and you're my high priest. And look, life in, in terms of leadership, I said one of the important things is to know God. That sounds elementary. But another thing a good leader does is he puts more weight on what God says honors him than what other people think. There's where most of our leaders go wrong because they do everything by polls. Well, what's the, well where, which way is the wind blowing? What do you think? And everything's a pull. And however the people are thinking, that's what I believe now. So if it's popular to be a Christian, now I'm a Christian. If it's popular to, to uh, stand up for uh, whatever uh, sexual things people are doing these days, then that's what I believe now. And people blow with the wind. They honor man's opinion above God's. That's what Jesus said about the religious leaders of his time. You elevate man's tradition above the word of God. Do you want to be a good leader? Decide on what hills you will die on and stay there and plant your flag there. Because look, the culture's going to blow around. You know that, right? Your friends are going to change their opinions. Things are going to go up and down. But the word of God does not change. Jesus says, the words of the, of the Father, the words of the Bible are going to endure forever. The world may pass away, but his words will, what? Never pass away. You want to be linked to something that's solid? Are you tired of floating around and having no firm foundation? Then do what God says. It doesn't change. His word is always right. It may not always be the popular opinion but it's always right. And that's where Eli went wrong. I mean, after all, look, we want to have a good relationship with our children, but Eli knew that his sons were doing horrible things and he didn't really stand up. He said, you guys, you're, uh, in, this, in essence, your sons are, are abusing the offering. Verse 30, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did in, indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. He's still referring to the priestly line. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me. Bible students, this is one of my life verses. I would highly encourage you to remember this verse. Those who honor me 
I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. That's from the New American Standard. Those who honor me, I will honor. You want to stand on the promise tonight? You honor God, and He will honor you. That's it. You can take that one to the bank. You honor Him, and He will honor you. That is a life verse for me. Make it your own. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. In 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 through 26, we see the what are really called worthless men, that is Hophni and Phinehas, and, and their, their father, Eli. Um, you know, some of the blame falls on their father. You know, he seemed to be a good guy, a solid man, but he could not control his sons. We're going to see in the chapter that he does at one point confront them, but not really rebuke them. He basically says, what you're doing is not good, but what they were doing was really abominable. They're called worthless men in verse 12 of chapter 2. And one of the reasons that they are called worthless men is because they did not know the Lord. And because they did not know the Lord, that didn't necessarily make them worthless, but because they really weren't in relationship with him and, and concerned about what pleased him, they're really more concerned about themselves. And that came out in the activity that was happening around things that are to be holy. Hophni and Phinehas become a picture of many people in our society. But you know what? Before we run out to the world and we, we start pointing our finger at people in the world, here's two men who are in high religious positions that don't know the Lord. You know, it's one thing if we look out there and we say, oh, that person's an atheist. It's no wonder they're doing this or that person's this. It's no wonder. But it's quite another thing when people are in positions of religious prominence, when they're around the holy things of God, the temple of the Lord, and yet they don't know the Lord. That's a tragedy. And that is exactly what's going on here. And that lack of relationship with the Lord came out in their behavior. And uh, this then is really a picture not outside the church, if we can take it from the Old Testament times into the church. It's a picture of those inside the church. And it really makes us think of Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus uh, assesses the seven churches. And uh, if memory serves, I think five of them get some sort of correction. And lukewarm Laodicea is uh, told that because they're lukewarm, the Lord is going to spew them out of his mouth. But then he does give them hope. He says, those whom I love, I discipline, I reprove. He calls on them to repent. And then he shares these famous words with lukewarm Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. The picture in Laodicea is not the Lord knocking on the door of an unbeliever's heart, although I think you could make some application there. The picture, rather, is that the Lord is knocking on the door of his church and saying, let me back in so that we can be in intimate fellowship. 